everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome in. I've been saying that lately and I like it. I think it's probably because I've gone to Disneyland recently and they say that in Small World. They do. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I click onto that one. Today on the show, we are going to discuss the Lucy Blackman story. It's called, there's a documentary called Missing the Lucy Blackman story. And there's also a book called The People Who Eat Darkness. And I'm going to give everybody, it's a real overview. This is not going into the details because mostly I'm going to concentrate on our culprit and his story or, you know, an overview of his story so that we can more deeply understand the criminal psychology, which is what we do here on the show. This story begins for us with a 21-year-old British female going missing in Japan, and that is Lucy Blackman. She was living and working in Tokyo in the year 2000. She was working as a hostess, which in Japan means she was a beautiful young woman who spent time in a club having dinner or drinks or both and having conversation with men who paid for her company. Not as formal as a traditional geisha, because as we know, foreigners can't become geishas, and not as intimate as something like prostitution. It's very much comp the girlfriend experience or just having delightful company with women at dinner. There does not need to be anything nefarious about this. Lots of women do this, have done this, and make a living at it, and they're often working illegally in Japan while doing this but it doesn't necessarily become prostitution because I think a lot of people think immediately that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. However, as a hostess, many young women can accept extra work with one gentleman or another, and this is called going on the Dohan date. This is where they would spend time outside the club with a particular man. Mind you, that also did not necessarily mean sex. It just meant dedication. It was a way for the wealthier of the men, or if they decided they liked a particular girl, to spoil them, take them out on their own. It could involve sex if, if it was consenting between two adults, but it didn't necessarily. It just meant that they liked you and wanted to spend more time with you and spend money on you. I mean, in our culture in America, maybe it's more of a sugar daddy situation. That doesn't always entail sex either. Just attention we don't quite have the same thing here. It's, diff it's very different culturally. Right. But it is more dedicated time with a certain person. And it's also outside the protection of the club, which is, I think, why a lot of women could make money and enjoy it while being in Japan is because you had the protection of being inside the club and nothing going in a direction that you didn't want it to go. And truly just doing your job of being a hostess and moving on to the next day. But as we know, Lucy ended up going missing. And so after Lucy disappeared, the police did not have any idea what happened to her and didn't really care because there was no, they often had women working illegally. So that was one problem that they had. They didn't care because she was there working illegally and they don't want that. So why would they investigate her disappearance super quick? Yeah, they're going to make that go away real fast. Yeah, they're just like, why would we care? She's not supposed to be doing that, <laughs> you know? And the other thing is that people working as hostesses or going on Dohans or doing this line of work or just there from America often just left with no notice. 
they would do the job for a while and then they would go and they wouldn't say anything and maybe they go back home, maybe they go traveling. So it wasn't really unusual. So they didn't begin to investigate until the family really pressured them and the British figure Tony Blair got involved. And the family, meaning the father and the sister, came over from Britain and started holding news conferences and really pressuring the Japanese police to do something about it. And that's the only reason why they started looking into it. And then Tony Blair got involved and he was obviously a powerful political figure. And mm-hmm. so then they, so they begin investigating, but they came up with all kinds of reasons because, well, one, <laughs> they got an anonymous call from someone that ends up being our perpetrator they got an anonymous call saying that, oh, by the way, Lucy Blackman um, joined a cult and oh. she's gone off to yeah. be with the cult. So don't go looking for her. <laughs> there were also rumors of her being sex trafficked, which was a common occurrence. They definitely tried to make it seem like she was a, a drugger and, you know, she like she liked drugs and drinking and she was just she just went off traveling and that's what they all do. So why do we care? So when I say there is a long and tangled massive web of investigation in this, I am not exaggerating. We would get very lost and confused if I were trying to do that. It would take me, (laughs) it would take me weeks to tell you all the ins and outs of this investigation. It's not that it's not interesting. It's totally interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's why I want to talk about this book that I read which I definitely recommend. It's called The People Who Eat Darkness, and it is about Joji Obara, who is our culprit, our perpetrator, and his victims, including Lucy Blackman. And if you like a well-told, well-researched story, meaning a true crime happening, but written as a story that takes into account macro and micro culture, family, the media, psychopathy, and victimization, the ins and outs, like written by a journalist. So you know there was a lot, a ton of work done on this. This is a really a great one. Okay, good. Yeah. It's comprehensive. It's fascinating. It's, it's, it's honestly pretty remarkable. Like I, 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 five stars, like it's really good as far as true crime is concerned. So if you like that sort of thing, I would, uh, I mean, if you love true crime and you're bored and dulled by most of the documentaries and books on true crime, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I am, there's honestly, so many bad ones. Do not skip this one. This is one of the be- better ones. So, I know you watched the documentary too, Kathy. We both mm-hmm. watched this documentary. What did you, What did you think of it? I mean, I thought it was good. It wasn't the best documentary I'd seen. I was interested in the story for sure. The way that I, I guess, took it was or what, what a feeling sat with me while watching it was first they introduce it and you, you see a lot of like what her parents are trying to do to find her. Yeah. And so I didn't, I didn't expect it to take this kind of turn. I didn't know much about the story until I watched the documentary, all the different cultural elements that play a part in this being like a normalized thing there, but also through this, how easy it would be for a woman to just disappear because as innocent as something like maybe just going to dinner and sitting with these men, you get 
one or two people like Obara and oh my God, this is his like, this is his pool. If he wants a victim, how easy is this? Yeah, as long as you go on a Dohan date, as long as you leave the club. But I would imagine a lot of these women do because it's more money. Yeah, and they're pressured to do it. If let's say nine out of 10 times or nine and a half out of 10 times, these women do it, maybe it's not great. They don't love doing it, but they're still alive when they get back. They're going to take a chance. And mm-hmm. someone like Obara knows they're going to take a chance. Mm-hmm. He also probably vets them depending on how many times he goes in there to just have dinner. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, I'm, I was watching it more from him and his, how easy it would be for him to find victims in something like this. Yeah. We talk a lot about that, right? Like victim profiling, victim profiling and just what, if he's really good at what he was doing, which clearly he was because he was serial, the amount of time that he took and how, how deliberate he could be because he had a fucking pool. Oh yeah. Very, very easy to find people. Absolutely. But I thought the documentary was well executed. I thought it was organized well for not knowing the story. It was, it was, it was done pretty well. Um, you know, it was interesting following the father and all of the attempts that he made to find his daughter and what that whole track of the story was really interesting. But yeah, I liked overall. I liked it. I'm glad yeah. I liked it until I read the book. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I'm sure no, they went into a lot more detail. Only because only because the in light of the book, the documentary looks definitely like as it as it is supposed to be. In the title, Missing, the Lucy Blackman story, it's very much about the family. It is. The father. It's very much about the father. It's very much about that. But the whole story is much more complex and much more interesting. And so absolutely, the documentary, if you want to watch, you know, it's only like 90 minutes or something. Don't want, don't read the book first. I'll tell you that because you, you get what you need to get out of the book without watching the documentary. But if you want to kind of see like, Hey, I'd like to really learn more. If you'd like to learn more about the total story, if you'd like to learn more about both Lucy Blackman and her family and also uh, Joji O'Bara and all of the ins and outs of this and really dig into it, it's a great book. So there is a lot of stuff too, that I don't remember them talking about well to your point i guess they go less into him mm-hmm. and when you read they don't really talk about him at all they don't talk about him at all and when you look things up about him specifically you get to know more of how people perceived his personality and you know what they what they deems is like strange behaviors by him and i mean if you think about it too this he's a psychopath so he feels like he's limitless. He can essentially do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And he did do whatever he wanted. He but did. his story is incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the documentary is is based on telling a lot of this father's story. And if you know kind of the ins and outs of what happened with his dad and how he was portrayed and the, some of the things that he did during the trial and after the trial and you know, cause it took a very long time. Then unfortunately the documentary kind of comes off like a PR piece for him in some way. So it's, it's got a, it's got a weird bend to it now that I've read the book. Suffice it to say, we have a culprit identified eventually took forever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but Joji O'Bara 
was born August 10th in 1952 in Osaka, Japan. His birth name was Kim Sung-jun. His parents were ethnic Korean living in Japan. And one of the things that the book definitely goes in is into is understanding what it's like to be Korean living in Japan. It's a marginalized community. Let's just put it that way. But again, you can learn a lot about the macro microculture in this in this book. It's very interesting. His father had begun by collecting scraps for a living and moved on to owning several properties, several businesses, and the family became very, very wealthy. And so Obara attended private schools. He was shy and quiet. He was bullied. His dad died when he was 17 years old, and he was left a lot of money, as were his two brothers, and they all became multimillionaires at the ages, and he was 17. So he enrolled himself in a prep school, which guaranteed his acceptance into Cayo University, and he got degrees in law and politics. So that plays out. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. <laughs> he also, after graduating, he also became a naturalized Japanese citizen and legally changed his Korean name to Joji Obara. So that just tells you how important it was for him to the image of being Japanese was very important. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be well-educated. He wanted to be seen as Japanese and he wanted to be very wealthy and he was all of those things. He also pursued a career in real estate himself. His two brothers became doctors. So that's interesting too, in mm-hmm. hindsight. <laughs> Helpers, people helping the community, doctors. Yep. And he pursued a career in real estate. He made a ton of money with properties. And unfortunately, he started investing in a lot more real estate uh, than he should have. And he got involved in the real estate stock market. And in the 90s, if you know anything about that, he lost his fortune. So he lost all his money. Well, almost all his money, not all his money. But what he did to gain it back is he began laundering money for the Japanese mafia. And that's why when Lucy, when Lucy was first missing, people like talked to the mafia. They talked, they thought it was a cult. They sort of, those were things that were going on at the time. So he was money laundering for the Japanese mafia and he was mostly isolated at this point. And he was living in this residence of his in the Moto Akasaka Tower, which was a a well-to-do living tower, basically. And he started to regain his properties, and he ended up having properties all over again. Power. Yeah, I know. Such power. He was an odd guy. Like, he forbid people to take pictures of him. So there are very few pictures of him without his sunglasses on. He wore sunglasses all day and all night, and he... They definitely figured out that he was a night walker, meaning he slept all day and was up all night. And given what he was doing, that makes sense. He became obsessed with women and he began committing unspeakable acts with them. He just became completely obsessed with women and going to clubs and these hostess bars and Dohan dates and all of this. And he just, every day, all the time, this is what he was doing. And what we didn't know he was doing at this at this particular time is that he began drugging and raping women who worked as hostesses and worked in other places as well. He would approach them and he would suggest Dohan dates outside of their working hours. He would take them to one of his properties. He would drug them. He would perform disgusting acts. 
and he would video record every single one of them. Wow. And he would use chloroform as a way to keep them unconscious. So he would drug them initially by drinking. They would always be drinking together mm-hmm. uh, because that's just something that they would have been doing in the Socially. clubs as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd have a day out or whatever, and then they'd go back to his place and then they would be drinking and he would drug them and they would pass out. And the way to keep them out was to chloroform them. Jesus. That's and, terrifying. Yeah. And he videotaped every single one of his encounters and he kept the tapes labeled with their names and his home victims straight would, out of a horror movie. It's really awful. It's, it's just, it's just really awful. If you take it in too deeply, it's, it's really horrific. This episode is brought to you by visit Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. There's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. These victims would wake up with pain and foggy memory in the morning, and he would gaslight them, and he would tell them that, because he would often put them back in their own clothes and tell them stories about how, you know, oh, you drank too much and passed out, or, you know, he would tell them all kinds of different stories. And they would be in pain with foggy memories and leave and, and feel like something happened, but they didn't know what happened. So they would just go on about their lives for the most part. That's so terrifying. Yeah. It's awful. And what are you going to do? Who's going to believe you? This guy's a lot of power. He's a lot of money. Well, and most of them were white women from other countries right, working illegally. Yeah. Working illegally. No one cares. In 1998, he was arrested for disguising himself as a woman and sneaking into the women's room and re- to record them. He was arrested. He was uncooperative and refused to have his mugshot taken. And you should see this mugshot. <laughs> it's, uh, he's got his face like squished up and he's like looking down. He's just looks like a dude like closing his eyes and putting down his head and then they took the mugshot like he would not I'm looking <laughs> it up very uncooperative so at this time he was regularly drugging raping and recording hostesses but was not suspected of anything so when he was arrested for this other thing now we know that this is what he was doing all the time in the summer of 2000 which was 2 years later when Lucy Blackman went missing and the subsequent publicity of that was the first time the public was aware of this phenomenon of women being drugged and raped and, and not remembering and losing time and all that. But we only know knew it in hindsight because so many women eventually ended up coming forward. I'm looking at these pictures of him. Also, you know, we, we finished up the series on Albert Fish and saying like how unassuming he looked. Yeah. This dude too. Yep. Yep. He was shy, quiet, just kind of regular looking. No one really thought anything of it. I mean, everybody thought he was odd. That's always what they know, right? That's Isn't that always, what they always say though? Yeah. They're just a little bit off. I'm like, that should be a huge flag. We meet people that are a little bit off all the time in our work, but yeah, if you're meeting them socially, Best just to have your spidey sense go like, there's a lot of people in the world. You don't need to be friends with that one. Yep. 
So Lucy had reported going on a Dohan date and never returned. Basically, a man, her roommate told police that a man had offered her a prepaid phone to accompany him to a beachside restaurant. And her roommate was going to meet up with them later. They had plans for the evening. So she was going to go on this dinner and then and then meet up with her roommate and then was never seen again. And an, un- an unidentified man later known as Obara had called the roommate to say that Lucy had run away and joined a cult. <laughs> so don't look for her. Yeah, don't she, don't look for know, her. She's we had a, a great cult. dinner, but she made a decision she, to go away. She left after <laughs> dessert to go was join actually, a cult. It was actually an anonymous call. So he oh, didn't Jesus. even he didn't even say it was him. Who so. is this? Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Try to forget. Try to forget. Don't worry about it. Can you imagine thinking that that would work? Oh, okay. God. So this triggered the family to come to Japan and hold, held press conferences and all that because the, she disappeared. But once the roommate got that call, it was like, uh, okay, so if she's joined a cult, I got to go there and figure this out, right? So even if it was true, they were going to go there and try to find her. So her father was pretty unwavering and persistent uh, that Lucy had not joined a cult or fled. <laughs> that that was not in her personality and that that didn't make sense. And so the case continued with more women coming forward and details leading them to Obara. So this is the part where I just said that in one sentence, but that's like a lot happened. Oh yeah. A whole investigation happened. Lots of interesting ins and outs in the documentary. Obara has like six different aliases. He was using names all over the, all over the country. Different women knew him by different names. There was never a great picture. I mean, it's like a whole thing. And it's a very, very interesting story. Investigation, if you like crime investigations. Obara was even questioned in his own home (laughs) at one point and suspiciously would not let the police inside his bathroom, which later we find out, you know, that's because that's where he had chopped her up. Oh, not because he had just done a number two and was no. embarrassed to let them in. No, not okay. because of what he stated, which is you've, you've seen enough of my place get out or whatever, but they had nothing to arrest him on at that point. They couldn't go in. Yeah. No, not at that point. But later the whole investigation happens ins and outs of all of that. Much work was done. The police were very diligent. And finally, Obara is arrested inside his residence. And in that residence now, because he's been arrested and they can search this residence, they find evidence of drugs, of chloroform. They find 400 videotapes, all with someone's name on them. This is straight out of... I mean, we've seen horror movies where they they come across this, right? And they have to watch these tapes. Yes, the police had to watch every single one every of these tapes. Every single one. Because they needed to try to identify the victims because it wasn't like it was their full given name on these tapes. It was just like... that being your job? No. When I used to Awful. work... When I used to um, work among the sex offender community and knowing that these folks had to go and go through all of these photos and the material and all the stuff in these guys cash on their computers just having to sit there all day and go through that type of stuff i can't even imagine no and they have to go through and log them all because and they have to freeze frame and look and take screenshots because they're trying to figure out who the victims are and trying to identify them so they can build a case and each one of the over 400 videotapes was a woman being drugged and raped and guess what lucy was not on any of the tapes so he either destroyed, he destroyed it probably. 
Obara maintained that everything on the tapes was consensual. And that he okay. and that he had paid each woman. And so all the activities were consensual because he had paid them. And that that he was innocent. Uh, the things I can't even tell you the things that happened during this investigation and trial and all of this. There is so much power, control, psychopathy, no guilt, no remorse. All trying, all saying he was a victim of this, that, or the other. All trying to manipulate everyone around him into believing that it was either not him, or it was consensual, or if it was him, they wanted it, and it was just a game. I mean, he never copped to any of it. <laughs> Ever. Ever. Obara always maintained that everything was consensual, and that he had nothing to do with it, and that he was not guilty. Women love chloroform. Oh, they yeah. ask for chloroform. Yep, all the time. <laughs> all the time. All, all the, the time. time. Every Sunday. Ultimately. Chloroform <laughs> Sundays. Yes. Ultimately, Lucy's body was found, and that was a whole investigation on its own. They, they looked for her body for so long, and it was found in a carved-out place of a mountain by a, the beach, the Mayura Kanagawa Beach, and this was right near one of Obara's properties. It had been dismembered into eight parts and was buried about 50 centimeters below the surface. Her head had been encased in concrete, and her remains were beneath a bathtub inside the cave. So that's why it took quite a while for them to find it because it was that's crafty, very well hidden. Wow. Yeah, he's a smart dude. Has a degree in law too, so you know. Lucy was of course not his only known victim. And this is one of the stories that the book goes into as well. There was Carita who he had drugged, raped, and she had overdosed on chloroform. Obara brought her to the hospital himself, saying she had ingested a, a poisonous oyster or an oyster that made her sick and left her there saying she'd had food poisoning. She worsened and died in the hospital with her family all around her. Turns out she died of chloroform overdose. And they later matched the chloroform in her system to the chloroform they found with him. And that was one of the pieces where they were able to try him for her murder. Karita was one of the women on the videotapes. They had that evidence as well. The trial for Obara commenced on July 4th, 2001, and it lasted seven years. I had a feeling that was going, you were, you're not going to say months. That is exhausting. I've been on, um, not, I, I've been hired to consult or testify on cases that had been, ha, have gone on for like two to three years. By the time I've come on them, they've already been going for three and that plus seems years. Epic. And that seems epic. The mm -hmm. longest I was ever on a case was like three and a half years. Mm -hmm. That seven years. And a lot of it was because of his craftiness. I'm telling you there were, and, and also the Japanese system, like that's a whole other part of the culture that you learn in this book. It's, it's a bit different than ours. I, well, I remember reading, or yeah. I think they talk about that in the documentary they a must, little bit too, yeah. but, um, the, the whole idea too, of memory lapse, you, you know, yeah. your memory changes. So if you're interviewing people, 
Yeah, and if you can stall them that long and come up with all kinds of interesting stories and have them go down rabbit holes and all of that and have it last and last and last, they'll forget. They'll do it. On uh, April 24th, 2007, he was found guilty, uh, and the guilty verdict did include the assault on Karina and her ultimate murder, I guess. But he was acquitted on the abduction and murder of Lucy because of lack of evidence. Uh, the discovery of the body was too late to be assistive in the process. They didn't get any any evidence off of her remains, and they didn't have a videotape, and they did, just didn't really have anything to convict him on that. There was a lack of evidence ultimately, but he was found guilty on the other things. So he was sentenced to life in prison. The case was appealed in March of 2008, the next year, and upon appeal, he was found guilty of the abduction, dismembering, and disposing of Lucy's body. And that's also an interesting piece of this and an interesting story of how they remounted the case and took a different tack and left out, because he was now had been in prison for that year, they left, he was not a part of any of that and without the chaos that he caused and without all of his whatever they were able to put on a proper case and convict him he then appeals in 2010 and loses and he remains incarcerated to this day but wait there's more <laughs> a detail i believe that is culturally very different and there was a lot of there's a lot of story kind of after we, he was convicted about what goes on in the family how the media handled it how the culture handled it how tim blackman handled things this is really different for us um in japan it's a very common thing for families to take money from the convicted to assist in helping with their own sentencing Apparently, I learned from this book that it can be a very common, natural, normal thing, quote unquote, normal thing for in Japan culture for somebody like Obara to give the family restitution for their crimes as part of getting a lesser sentence. Oh, right. That's different. Very. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, we I'm don't, gonna pay it off. I'm we don't pay, play like that. I'm gonna here. pay off. We don't play like that here. My sentence. Now, I'm not saying this is the way it normally happens, but what ended up happening is Tim Blackman accepted 450,000 pounds from a friend of Obara's, which we know it was Obara giving it to them. Which I guess the guy's not allowed to directly do it. It's supposed to come from a trust, but anyway, the friend condolence money they call it. Blackman's other family members were very opposed to this as British folks. I imagine they were not used to this custom, certainly. And a trust using some of this money and promoting personal safety was established in Blackman's name. The judge stated that in deciding on the sentence, he did not attach much importance to Obara's payment of consolation money to a number of his victims. The point missing in that little paragraph is that Tim took the money and agreed to say certain things at the sentencing hearing in support of Obara getting life in prison instead of whatever else he could have gotten or uh, like getting off or a lesser sentence or whatever. In other words, the father of this victim agreed to help Obara get lesser time for that money. Now, I don't know about anywhere else, but over here, 
That is super sus. Oh, for sure. You can imagine how when I read this book and then I go and watch that documentary, you can imagine how it seems like a puff piece for the dad. Oh, because I'm just like, guys, (laughs) this guy took money. And it was a scandal. Like the family didn't agree with it. Mom and dad were divorced actually before Lucy's disappearance. So it caused even more trouble. Mm-hmm. The sister had her own feelings about this. And that's all explicated in the book too. It's just like. That's disgusting. <laughs> it was awful to read that because. And the one it's one of the many reasons why this book is good. Is there's lots of twists and turns. And you're just thinking one thing and then something else happens and you're like, really? There's more? Like mm. you think the trial's going to end the book and you realize there's like a hundred pages left and you're like, what else could happen? And here we are. Going back to Abara, sexual sadist, rapist, addicted to power and control, very much a lonely misanthrope, bullied as a kid, very wealthy, absolutely psychopathic personality. He's straight out of the horror movies we... Yeah. I mean, characters are based on these guys. Absolutely. Yeah. He is up there with any of the awful people we have talked about on this show. And because he lives in Japan or the case was in Japan and it was a British, a lot of British and a lot of international victims, it's not, it doesn't necessarily get the play in America that, you know, a Manson or a Ramirez or any of our California, (laughs) California baddies get. But this one... It's it's awful, and if you are interested in true crime and understanding the darker side of personality and criminal psychopathy, this would be a great book for you to read. So cool. maybe start with the doc, move on to the book. There's an audio book. You can get that. So if you like to, well, listen to gruesome things, I guess. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.